What is up, ambitious listeners? Great episode coming at you today. One of the best to do it when it comes to the NFL draft. It's pro football focus is Austin Gale. He hosts a podcast with them that's absolutely killer. Um, talking all things NFL draft. He plugs that in there. He talks a lot about the pro football focus, mantra, how they go about things, and so much more. He's a great guy. It's a great conversation. And all of that after a quick word from our presenting sponsor, Anchor. Yo, what is up? Welcome to Ambitious. My name is Dylan Price. Today's guest hosts the Two for One Drafts podcast. He's also the associate director of content at Pro Football Focus. He is a draft I would say one of the best draft analysts in the game, one of the smartest football minds in the game, and he's also today's guest on Ambitious. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Austin Gale. Austin, how are you doing, my man? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. I want to go back to your roots before we start talking some football here. When did you realize that sports, I guess journalism, was your passion? Yeah, I really do think it started kind of my sophomore year of college at San Diego State. You know, I was playing football since I was five years old, you know, um, with, you know, know, leading up into high school. And then when I graduated, you know, there was no real opportunities for me to pursue that further, at least in my opinion at the time. It's like, you know, I'm five foot eight, 160. I'm not playing in college or anything like that. So I kind of moved away, you know, moved to doing a teaching degree at San Diego State. And the first year there, like, I really wanted to be a teacher. I obviously pursued it wholeheartedly but I really missed football and um I then got a you know uh volunteer opportunity to be a strength and conditioning coach at a high school in San Diego high school football team in San Diego I did that for about a year and then kind of some self-awareness at play I was like you know like the path to being like really successful coaching in football starts with playing in college or playing in the NFL and I just didn't think it was going to be all that likely for me to kind of pursue that as a long-term career path so then I was like, you know, how do I stay in football? You know, how do I continue? I can't play. I can't coach probably. It's probably unlikely I can coach. And then kind of dawned on me after a handful of conversations with some of my friends that like, you know, maybe you could pursue writing. And so uh, my sophomore year of college, I was still pursuing a teaching degree at San Diego State and um, started my own website, NFLDraftPulse.com and wrote about draft prospects. It was terrible. No one read it, but started kind of doing that. And I really, really fell in love with it. And it kind of led to one opportunity after another, you know, unpaid writing opportunities just to get clips and different you know, sites and different aggregating sites like SB Nation and Fansided. And then that kind of snowballed into more and, you know, more ambitious opportunities <laughs> to kind of put a play on words there, but bigger opportunities. And then ultimately when I was graduating from San Diego State, um, had some, you know, I applied to like over a hundred places in the country to kind of go write. And, wow. you know, one of those offers was to go to PFF, not necessarily for a writing job, but to come work for PFF and sort of what was like a customer service role. And then I've kind of, you know, developed in this role and developed a PFF to the point where I'm at now. Now, when you used to play football, were you a good player? Were you someone who kind of studied the game, but maybe didn't play as well on the field? What, what kind of sparked your football love specifically, I guess? Um, so my dad's a big football guy and he you know, was very, it was very important to him that I played football at a very young age. And I think I fell in love with it very quickly just playing it. And I think for the same reasons anyone likes football, it's just like, it's literally the most popular sport in the United States for a reason. It's a very, very engaging sport when you're playing, when you're watching, coaching, playing fucking video games of football is engaging. So I do think I just fell in love with it for all the same reasons others do. Um, and in, in high school, I was like first team, you know, all conference on along the defensive line and did a handful of those things, but it was largely because we played in a bad conference 
and I was like one of the better players on a team of like 22 guys. Like we did not have a lot of players. Like all mm-hmm. of our players played both ways. I played offensive line and defensive line and kind of knew that like it was never going to be a long-term thing for me, but always knew, also knew that like this is like my last shot. Like this is the last time to play with some of my friends. So I um, obviously took the best of it. Now, what, you know, you mentioned ending up at Pro Football Focus, but what is Pro Football Focus like? And what, I guess, describe for people, you know, a lot of people associate Pro Football Focus with the grading. What does Pro Football Focus kind of do to differentiate themselves as a sports media company and specifically with the grades? Yeah, uh, Pro Football Focus, I think from a culture standpoint, I think people forget because it's gotten really big in the last five to 10 years with, you know, Chris Collinsworth buying into the company, it being obviously represented on NBC and Sunday Night Football. Its Twitter presence is very big. Its website is very popular. People forget that it's a startup. Like, you know, PFF was only, you know, specifically the content side was only really full swing since like late 2016, 2017. Like we really didn't have a footing as a content company or media company until 2016, 2017, and then have kind of like developed on that side. When I first started on the content side of PFF, there were only like 25 full-time people contributing to PFF content. Now there's close to 40, not even 40, like 38, 39 total full-time members that are creating, you know, every single piece of content that goes on PFF.com. Obviously there's some part-time contributors and some interns as well, but full-time only 39 people. So I think people forget that there is this startup mentality at PFF where we're still very small with really aggressive growth goals. When you compare it to you know, some of the pl- places I applied to coming out of college, like a lot of newspaper industries and those types of things, those places are just trying to stay afloat. You know, a lot of newspapers right now aren't necessarily looking to grow 50 to 100% in a year. They're looking to just not make cuts and, and cut costs where they can and those types of things. So it's been really fun and engaging to play for a team or work for a company, play for a team that's trying to win aggressively all the time, not necessarily just tread water. So I think that culture is awesome. And in terms of how they're differentiating themselves, I think right now analysis-based journalism or analysis-based content, sports media content is kind of taking over in terms of priority and engagement and all that stuff. You look at the top story for ESPN.com right now is predicting, you know, the winners of a bracket in March, you know, for the NCAA tournament. It's not a story with some of the coaches or players it's not access-based stuff like this is the you know the five notable quotes from a press conference it's very analysis projection-based content and pff because of the data it collects and the data it has access to is able to leverage a lot of this unique pff exclusive data to create really good engaging analysis on such a popular sport like american football and I think other other media outlets and other competitors are catching up to that. You see The Athletic, while positioned as, you know, very good journalism in those things, some of their best pieces are from their analysts, like Ted Nguyen of The Athletic is very good. Others like Robert Mays, where they're asked to form opinions and, and create content on their opinions on decisions made by front offices or schematic principles run by certain teams. So I do think this analysis-based sports media content where fans are more engaged with why it's happening not necessarily what is happening is uh kind of gives pff an interesting opportunity to kind of leverage some of that and and move forward as a sports media outlet 
Yeah, I uh, I religiously use PFF when I am doing um, some content for Empire Sports Media and turn on the Jets, and especially if I'm looking to, uh, like, uh, just doing a piece on Joe Tooney recently for uh, the Patriots and how he'd be a good fit for the Jets, and I immediately, first thing was, okay, what was his PFF grade? And, okay, well, what does PFF say his uh, stats were? And then I'll go to, you know, some of the other ones to get varying opinions, but PFF is consistently one of my top go-tos, and, uh, yeah, you guys are killing it over there. But at the same time... There does happen to be some ridicule for those grades I just mentioned. So as somebody who works for PFF, can you kind of explain how the player grades kind of gets dictated? Um, you mentioned a lot of analytics. And how you guys there at PFF deal with some of the ridicule from players and from media and fans uh, saying, oh, well, this person should have been graded higher or, whoa, that was way too low. Yeah, so, you know, the grading system at PFF for both college and the NFL, we're also doing some CFL and some high schools, we have the BAIF, the XFL, those things. Um, every single player and every single play is graded from negative two to positive two at 0.5 increments. So a negative two being worst play you've ever seen, the positive two being like Eli Manningham, or Eli Manningham, Eli Manning, Demario Manningham in the Super Bowl on that key down, down the sideline. Some of those clutch very big, important plays that, you know, at your respective position. And then any play that's kind of considered expected within a role or expected at the level of the NFL is graded at a zero. And then through the course of a game, through the snaps that you play, you add up those grades to a certain figure, normalize them based on positional alignment and role, and then put them through an algorithm to kind of spit them out onto a normal distribution across zero to 100 grades. I think, um, that is like the process in a nutshell. Obviously, there's more in depth for like how you grade offensive linemen versus how you grade defensive linemen, wide receivers versus corners, and those types of things. But I think to address kind of the question about why PFF grades get so much critical, I think I do think one of the bigger reasons is kind of the misconception that grade represents like how good a player is. Grade, I think, should be treated very similarly to any stat that it's a grade across a certain number of snaps and therefore performance-based, not necessarily evaluation-based. So if a player has 5,000 passing yards across 16 games, that's the stat. If a player has an 86.6 grade across 5,000 snaps, that's the stat. It's not necessarily like this player is this good and this is how good he'll be. Just like if you throw for 5,000 yards, it's not how good, you know, James Winston threw for 5,000 yards or at least close to it from that season. Like it's not that, and you know, it's more descriptive than it is predictive. However, there are some grades and some levels of the grading process that are predictive and stable year over year that provide value, more stable than traditional metrics. And that's where I think the other big counter to some of the criticisms. It's like, you know, if you like passer rating, if you like, you know, EPA per dropback and those things, those statistics are not as stable year over year and therefore predictive as PFF passing grade, specifically PFF passing grade from a clean pocket. Like, and what are you looking for in a stat? trying to describe how good a player is. And I think PFF grading compared to a lot of traditional metrics is more predictive and more stable than yards per carry, passing yards, passer rating, CPOE, EPA per dropback. And that's what PFF's really trying to do. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Our coverage grades need to drastically improve and we're working to improve those. Our off ball you know, uh, coverage grades, specifically like safeties and linebackers have opportunities to improve. Rushing grades have opportunities to improve. We're learning more about what grades are stable and what grades aren't. And when you when we see that instability, because we've developed this process of grading every single player and every single play, we have opportunities to tweak grading and adjust grading to get better. Whereas traditional box score statistics like yards per carry, you can't change that to be more stable. Yards per carry is yards per carry every single time. And 
it doesn't have a lot of predictive power. If you have a yard, high yards per carry in college, it does not in any way, shape, or form mean you'll have a high yards per carry in the NFL. And those are the questions people want to answer. People want to know if a player does X in college, could he do something similarly in the NFL? And I think that's what NFL teams are asking us to do research on. That's what we obviously want to answer. And the same question can be, can be said for NFL players. If a player is this good across four years when he's a free agent, could we bank on him being similarly good in our system? Yards per carry is not going to tell you that. I'm sorry. You have to look at other metrics that are a little bit more stable, more sticky year over year. And I think that's what PFS is trying to do. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But there's still a lot of opportunities to improve. And some of the grades and a lot of the processes that we have put in place have proven to be predictive, both at the college and NFL level. So still, you know, obviously improving, but still in a really good place right now as well. That was a phenomenal answer, and it was, uh, at least personally from my perspective, I thought it was great to uh, hear some description over that, and I'm sure the audience will appreciate it. But it's time to talk some ball. Uh, you host the Two for One Drafts podcast. By the way, shouting you out, before I even give you the platform to talk about it, because I have to say it, you have a absolutely loaded slate of guests coming up in the lead-up to the draft. Can you talk a little bit about that before we talk some football? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are doing a ton of interviews on 2-4 drafts. It's something that I've always really liked to do. I think it comes back to my journalism background and always like my first love in journalism and creating content was talking to players and talking to people and writing stories on people. And I think having that, you know, Mike Renner, who's my podcast co-host, do a lot of the analysis of the draft and try and be objective in his analysis while I'm able to kind of get a little bit deeper and talk to some of these guys and find out why they ran a limited route tree at UNC or why they took a step back from 2020 to 2020 to 2019. And you know, guests coming up today, we dropped interviews with Christian Derisaw, Virginia Tech, Rashad Weaver, Pittsburgh, some other ones to highlight. Rashad Bateman of Minnesota is on the next on um, the podcast that comes out tomorrow. Eric Stokes Jr. of Georgia on Monday, Terrace Marshall Jr. on um I think next Wednesday and a handful of other ones as well. Marvin Wilson, Michael Carter, um, some really, really cool ones coming up. But I think talking to these guys and, and, and leveraging kind of what I understand about the game and, and, and the NFL specifically, I think it's been very, very insightful in terms of the conversation you can have with them rather than what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you want to do in the NFL? Getting a little bit deeper in terms of their role and how they see their role in the NFL and talking more talking shop a little bit more than maybe some of these standard journalists might do uh in other interviews that's that's awesome it's a Something I'm looking forward to, looking forward to uh, listening to some of those. But now let's talk some ball. Um, Chris Sims, I don't know if you saw it, released his quarterback rankings a few weeks ago, and they have uh, drawn the ire of many, also drawn a lot of um, credit by some because of how well he's done in the past. What did you think of those rankings, and how do the quarterbacks rank out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think they're obviously very interesting. You know, Chris Sims has obviously kind of planted his flag, I think, of those rankings on Kellen Mond, where I think they're in fourth on his quarterback rankings, it went Zach Wilson of BYU, Trevor Lawrence of Clemson, Mac Jones, Alabama, Kellen Mond, Texas A&M, and then he had Trey Lance and Justin Fields either either swapped or in that order after Kellen Mond. And I think the biggest takeaway from there is that you know Chris Sims is very big on Kellen Mond, so much that he's you know looking at him ahead of other guys that have been consistently mocked inside the top five, if not the top ten, and Justin Fields and Trey Lance. And there's a lot of initial reaction to these rankings where people kind of overreact and say, I can't believe he's saying this because they've seen so many other rankings opposite to that. But I think it highlights a point that I've made a lot this off season and that, you know, NFL draft evaluation has become over the past, you know, three to five years, very in some ways overrated because of how much value you know, the media has placed on evaluating and ranking players. And while there is a ton of value in that, I think it's become too black and white in that 
I think this player is better than this player. And therefore, in the NFL, I think this player is going to be more productive than this player. And it's not always that simple because situation, development, you know, off-field trajectory, those type of things matter. And like I think there's a situation or another universe, so to speak, where Justin Jefferson lands with a different team and doesn't have the same success as he had last year. Because, and as good as he is, he's fantastic. Broke the rookie receiving yards record for a reason. Yeah. But there, there are a handful of other teams, like specifically like Las Vegas, Philly, um, Chicago, like teams where they weren't in as ideal of a situation where Justin Jefferson doesn't come close. And, and people are altering their evaluations based on like how well Justin Jefferson played. No, the evaluation was there's three or four of these wide receivers that are very, very good first round caliber prospects. And depending on situation, all of these guys could be very, very productive in year one, year two. I think that's where evaluation should be. But instead, because what draws in clicks, what draws, draws in impressions and overall fan interest is kind of planting your flag and saying Kellen Mond's better than Trey Lance and Justin Fields, that's where kind of the media has taken over. But I think even if you hear if you talk to Chris Sims, he talks about yes, you know, Kellen Mond could be more successful than Justin Fields with Trey Lance, but he's also well aware that Justin Fields can be more successful depending on situation and development. Yeah, so I, I do agree on you with uh, that a lot of it is planting your flag and a lot of it is not necessarily as based on evaluation too at times anymore. And a lot of the media to this point has been clicks and getting a lot of traction too. So I think that the way uh, Chris explained a lot of it was impressive, but I don't know if you intentionally dodged my question there or I, I kind of paired two together, but where do you have the quarterbacks ranked? Uh, this big, big question here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now, I think in a tier by himself, it is Trevor Lawrence of Clemson. I still think he is the best quarterback prospect in this class. I think he's one of the best quarterback prospects we've seen in quite some time. I put him comfortably, honestly, ahead of some of the other guys here. I think after that, it's Zach Wilson at two. Um, Justin Fields at three and Trey Lance at four, where I put Wilson and Fields in a very similar tier where they played a lot of good football and they have some athleticism and some traits that you want to kind of get behind and concede having a higher ceiling in the NFL. Trey Lance, I think I put in another tier after those guys because even though he has his athleticism and these tools, accuracy is a bit of a concern for me from what we saw at North Dakota State and also sample size. Like you just haven't seen the guy do it a ton. And that's always going to be a concern at BFF because, you know, we're so production-based and we do look at analytics and grades and those things. It's not always going to be just traits for BFF. If you went just off traits, Trey Lance might be the best quarterback prospect in this class, at least right up there with Trevor Lawrence. But you have to factor in how many, you know, how many snaps have you seen him honestly play? You know, people bring up Davis Mills of Stanford, who I think is a day-two quarterback on PFS board right now, and say, man, he just hasn't played a lot. He's, done, he's had more dropbacks than Trey Lance. Like, I mean, Davis Mills has not played a lot of games, but neither has Trey Lance. I think that sample size is a bit of a concern. And then at five, I have Mac Jones of Alabama right there. Now, um, a lot has been made about um, where these guys also rank out in terms of past years. In comparison, I guess, to your last year's rankings and even going back a, a little further than that, how do – I'll just stay focused on the top three here in this case because that's kind of the way you had them tiered. Um, how do Trevor, Zach, and Justin rank in comparison to the guys you've ranked in the past two to three years? Yeah, I think Trevor Lawrence is the best of the guys we've seen over the past few years, kind of factoring in Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, that kind of like tier there, and also like um, you know the quarterbacks drafted this past year. I think Joe Burrow maybe is in the conversation after Wilson and maybe ahead of Fields, but honestly you could start to see 
fields be ahead of Burrow in some ways because of some of the tools and some of the things that we've seen. But I think in a vacuum, maybe you ultimately do put Burrow ahead of fields. And then compared to Kyler, Kyler, I think, is in that Wilson tier. I think I'd put Kyler ahead of Zach Wilson, maybe right behind Zach uh, Trevor Lawrence. And as for Baker Mayfield, I think he is in a tier after Joe Burrow even in that while he was very successful at Oklahoma, there were a lot of concerns on his tape that you just don't see on some of these other guys' tape. And you've seen some of those, like, failing out of, you know, clean pockets and, you know, struggling with pressure with Baker Mayfield that you saw in Oklahoma and now see in the NFL that will probably stick with him. So I do think you put him after Burrow. So it's hard to kind of put all these together in my head. But Trevor Lawrence at one makes sense. I think having Zach Will- Kyler Murray at two, Zach Wilson at three, then starting to consider Burrow and Fields. I think it, you're splitting hairs at that point again. A lot of these guys are going to be successful in the NFL. And then you start to put in, you know, Baker. Josh Allen's got to be in the conversation probably in that Wilson, um, that Zach Wilson and uh, Kyler Murray's here. But if you go in hindsight, you're probably more likely to put Josh Allen in the Trey Lance tier. And both these guys are big-armed athletes that weren't that accurate in college. Like, both those guys finished with under 40% accuracy percentages on throws 10-plus yards downfield. They were just not accurate in college. And obviously, Josh Allen has improved in that area, but it's rare to see. And you talk to even scouts in the NFL, they don't consider accuracy as something you can markedly improve. Josh Allen is the outlier, not the rule. A lot of great stuff there. I guess um, my question for you is I didn't hear – Lamar ranked in there, I guess, and I didn't hear, um, well, Sam and then Justin Herbert. Where did you kind of have, um, I'll, I'll more stay specifically with Lamar Jackson. Um, how did you view Lamar Jackson when he came out of college? Did you see him kind of lighting up the league like he has, or did you see him like needing to fall in the right system? I guess, how did you view Lamar when he came out? I definitely think he needed to fall in the right system, and he has. And I think Lamar, the Lamar Jackson, Sam Darnold, you know, Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen type of tier was, I think, right when the NFL was starting to get into creating an offense for your quarterback rather than fitting your quarterback into your offense. And I think you saw that with Lamar Jackson. You've seen that with Josh Allen since. Baker Mayfield's even had his offense adapted for him under Kevin Stefanski. Or I think the NFL is catching on in that you get a quarterback, he can do X, Y, and Z. He's not great at these two things. We need to build an offense that can – raise those strengths or cater to those strengths and hide those weaknesses. You know, with Lamar Jackson, he can't play in the same offense Baker Mayfield does. He'd be atrocious. Absolutely not good compared to what he does, obviously, with Baltimore, where they're running a lot more things over the middle. They're getting the ball out quickly, not asking him to throw, you know, far and outside the numbers, running him off to the ton. Like, offensive scheme matters at the quarterback position. You need to highlight your quarterback strengths, not try and force some of the weaknesses out of him. I was talking to Bucky Brooks recently of NFL Media, and he says – you know, a lot of scouts will say, like, tell me what he can do. I don't really care what he can't do. I need to know what he can do and, and work with it. He also said, you know, a common scouting term is grade the flashes. You know, you, you grade the high end in a player's game. If you can see in several moments, plays or games where he can have this high end ceiling level play, like we saw, you know, Justin Fields down the stretch last season. It's like, that's what I want. It's my job as the coaching staff. It's my job as the front office to put him in a position where we see the high end more often, not necessarily grade all these low end games. Like, you know, Justin Fields didn't play well against Northwestern, you know, it didn't happen, but you're looking as a coaching staff to avoid putting him in those positions, not necessarily saying, okay, he's not good at those things. And we're going to have to deal with that. I think you're looking to grade the high end, grade the flat and try and build those out. 
Well, a lot of great insight there. I do want to switch positions a little bit here because um, there's a lot of talent in this class. And, you know, as much as it's the mainly talked about thing, the draft isn't all about quarterbacks. There's tons of other talented players in this draft. You mentioned uh, Christian Derisaw came on the podcast. Um, it seems like Rashawn Slater, him, Penny Sewell, and I, it's just, I, really the three of them, to me, are kind of in a class of their own. Maybe Sewell getting graded above some, Slater uh, some above the rest. Um how do you view this offensive line class? I mean, we're coming off a class a year ago where there was five um, distinct, really talented prospects. Yeah, I don't think it's as top-heavy as last year's class. Like, I think what we saw, four offensive tackles go inside the top 10, top 12 picks. Like, this year, I think Nesul, obviously a top 10 player. But after that, I do think you see Slater and Darisoff slip into the teens. Um but I think those three are obviously the top three offensive tackles in this class. And after that, it's kind of a, it's kind of what you want, what you want at the tackle position. What are you looking for? I put Panay Sewell in a tier by himself and I see Slater in a tier by himself and then Darisol. Like I think Slater, his feet, his technique, his technique is just absurd. Like I don't, I would not put Slater and Darisol in the same tier in that I just feel way more confident what Slater can do both to tackle and at guard better technically and athletically than what Darisol can. But Darisol is still a damn good player. Um, Right now, I think to give some perspective, there are eight offensive tackles that rank inside PFS top 40. Like, there are very good offensive tackle prospects here. It's a very deep class compared to last year. There's not as big of a fall-off like there was in 2020, where after Worfs, Wills, Becton, and Thomas, there was, like, a steep drop-off in terms of, like, offensive mm-hmm. tackle talent. I think here, after Derisaw, Tevin Jenkins, Alex Leatherwood, Walker Little, Sam Cosme, Jalen Mayfield, like the list goes on and on. There was a lot of really, really talented offensive tackle prospects that could come off the board between, you know, pick 13 and pick 50. Uh, you could probably see like six plus guys go. Now, last last draft had to have been probably one of the most talented wide receiver classes in recent memory. This season seems like it's kind of replicating that once again with a very talented crop. Arguably the top three, maybe even more talented than last year's crop. Um, In grading Devontae Smith, um, Jalen Waddle, and Jamar Chase versus um, CeeDee Lamb, oh, I'm blanking, oh, Jerry Judy, and Henry Ruggs from a year ago, how, which class do you give the edge to? Do you give this year's class a little bit more of an edge, or do you give last year's class a little more of an edge in terms of just the top three? The 2021 class is better. I mean, I think Jamar Chase is the best receiving prospect of all those guys. And I think, you know, hindsight, I really like Jerry Judy. I consider putting him ahead of, you know, maybe Waddle or Smith, but still, like, both those guys are damn good. Like, we're talking, it comes back to what I said, like, draft evaluation, it's not as simple as this guy than this guy. Like, I think Jamar Chase is the best. But then after that, it's like, what do you want? You know, like Jalen Waddle is a better prospect than Henry Ruggs because of what he brings from a Twitch perspective. He's a very jittery athlete, more so than Ruggs was. Ruggs was more of a straight line burner. I think Waddle is going to get open on the underneath route tree a lot more than Ruggs will in the NFL. And Devontae Smith, you could argue, is a better route runner than Judy was. Like Judy, though awesome, a little bit inefficient with his movements. And that while Devontae Smith is very efficient with his feet, really understands how to quickly create separation, stack receivers despite his size. Like 2021 class is damn good. I would say better than 2020. I do think though, when you're looking at these this group of six guys, or even if you factor in Justin Jefferson, Chase Claypool, and then some of the other guys in this class, like Rashad Bateman, Rondell Moore, mm-hmm. I think what we're coming to see is that, you know, the wide receiver position, you start so many now, you know, 
11 personnel is the most dominant, you, you know, is the most commonly used personnel package for three wide receivers. And then you have tight ends that are, you know, moving into the slot and those things. And some, a lot of teams will even, or more teams are starting to play a little bit more 11 or, or 10 personnel. You see the Arizona Cardinals doing that a lot. Like you need three starting caliber wide receivers now. And I think that's bred a lot of talented development receiver prospects at the collegiate level where you run a lot of four wide, five wide type of stuff. So I think we're going to start to see like class after class be very good. I will say though, Quick peek ahead to 2022, it's not going to be better than this class, and it's not going to be better than last year's class either. Obviously, early, there's guys that could break out, guys that I haven't thrown on my radar yet that could be damn good. But right now, it's looking like this 2021 class is going to be one of the better ones for uh, for at least a couple of years. Now, the running back position, before I go to the defensive side of the ball, the running back position this year... Um, I guess tell me a little bit about it. Um, obviously, a lot of people know about Najee Harris and Travis Etienne. Who are we looking at maybe in the mid-rounds that could go? And where do you see Harris and Etienne going at this point? I mean, some people have them in the first, some people have them in the early second. How do you view them in terms of their uh, draft value? Yeah, I mean, I think Najee Harris does come up forward in round one. I think he's too productive of a player coming from a blue blood program for the old guard in the NFL to not jump on him, you know, after the first 16 picks. I think Miami gets mocked him a ton at 18. I see the Steelers take him at 24 a lot. I, I think you'll see maybe Tampa Bay, which, again, I was on a Tampa, Tampa Bay radio station today, and they're saying, you know, what's your opinion of, you know, filling the Leonard Fournette hole in the first round pick and at running back? It's like, what are we doing? You just signed a running back off the street that started for you in the Super Bowl. Why would you spend such a valuable asset on that position when you can go get guys like this? You can go get starting caliber running backs with legitimate productive profiles on, on, on the open market, like off the street. I, I do think spending a first round pick on the running back position is still ill-advised. And it comes back to just how the league values the position. You know, if you average the top five salaries at running back, it's the lowest rated position in terms of average annual salary of any position in the NFL. And tight end is the only one that's really close. And you think about the, the, the first round picks are all set on set rookie contracts. Like whether you pick a running back or a quarterback at pick 10, it gets paid or he gets paid the same amount of money. So, you know, for example, when Saquon Barkley was picked at number two overall, he was the fifth highest paid running back in the NFL instantly. You pick a tackle or a quarterback at number two, they rank outside the top 30. It's very simple in terms of when you look at the cap situation and how much these guys get paid on the opening contract, you don't even have to get into how valuable a running back is to your team or how valuable they are to winning you football games. It's simple dollars and cents in terms of how the NFL currently values the position. Like it is not the NFL on average does not spend a ton of money at running back. So why would you spend a ton of draft capital at the position when it's obviously more important to get guys, you know, pass rushers, offensive tackles, quarterbacks, and those things. So I do think running backs like Najee Harris will go in the first round. I think Travis Etienne ultimately sips to round two. And then the guys after that love the UNC backs, Devontae Williams, Michael Carter, um, I think Javion Hawkins is like a day three sleeper I can get on board with. Reminds me a little bit of Raheem Mostert in that he's got a lot of speed. And, you know, in the NFL, when so much of rushing production is based on the blocking ahead, if you can guy, you can give this guy an inch, give this guy a foot, he can take it the distance at any point. I think force miss tackle ability is kind of what pushes you ahead of day three, pushes you into that day two conversation for me. And Devontae Williams, while he'll probably be the third back off the board, is probably the best tackle breaker in this class played the past season at 20 years old, way younger than some of the other backs here, and still has a lot of room to improve from a vision and patience and technical standpoint because he didn't play running back until his senior year of high school. He played linebacker, asked Alabama for an offer. They said he was too short. 
Now he's playing running back and playing at a high level and only going to get better as he learns the position. Former valedictorian in high school, 4.6 GPA, almost quit in high school because he thought he could pursue other jobs with how smart he was. And now, obviously, playing running back, I think you're going to see this guy get drafted probably second round, maybe third round, and be a very good value pick at the position. Is there a way that maybe he goes above ETN? Absolutely. There, there, it depends on what you covered at the position. Like, Devontae Williams doesn't have home run hitting speed, and he's mm-hmm. not as good of a pass catcher as Travis ETN. But if you're looking for a guy to run on early downs, and that's the need in your offense, go get him. But if you already have a guy that's going to be your pass catching back or your third down back or your home run hitter, then you won't value Travis Etienne as much. That's why, again, you talk about draft evaluation. You talk about media putting out draft boards and rankings. It's like you're making this independent of your team's needs, scheme, roster, etc. Like There are going to be teams that have Travis Etienne as the number one back and Najee Harris as three or four because they're looking for that type of back in their offense. And same as the other way around, like teams looking for bigger backs like Najee Harris or Javante Williams. Tell me about the defensive players this year. Uh, Micah Parsons is somebody who immediately, immediately jumps out to me as a uh, Penn State fan. I watched him tear it up um, and had high expectations for him going into this season, but uh, ultimately he chose to opt out and make the best decision for him and his family. But um, a lot of talent. Where do you rank them? Um, I not, not even necessarily where do you rank them because that question does get redundant. Who stands out to you? Defensively, you know, obviously – Big question, ton of positions there. I think Michael Parsons is one of the highest ranked defensive players on PFS board right now, and rightfully so. I think the only thing, the concerns you hear about Michael Parsons are, you know, some of the responsibilities he had in coverage didn't look all that great, turning his back to the line of scrimmage and chasing drops and those things. And also, there's some, I won't speak to it a ton, but there is some rumors of things about his off field that are a bit concerning, and that'll probably come up in the pre draft process, but we'll see. Um, other defensive players I really like, I think this quarterback class, while not super top heavy, there isn't a Jeffrey Akuda prototype in this class. I think Farley is damn good, well worth the top 10 pick. The Caleb Farley, uh, Virginia Tech corner. Patrick Sertan, very talented in certain schemes. If you play in a cover three single high scheme, I think that's going to be huge. J.C. Horn, very similar in a man-heavy scheme. He's going to play really well. Press him at the line and let him get better. I think you're going to see J.C. Horn be very good in the NFL. And then even after that, Asante Samuel Jr., immediate starter at slot, but I think he has the opportunity to play on the outside. Elijah Molden, immediate starter in the slot, and I think he'll stay put or play safety in the NFL. I'm always an advocate of pursuing defensive backs early in the draft. One, it's another valuable position. And two, you start so many now. You know, like I said, with 11 personnel, it's the most dominant personnel usage offensively. More teams play nickel. You know, I think it's like 80% of the NFL or 90% of the NFL plays nickel more than 50% of the time. You're starting five defensive backs, six defensive backs a lot. You look at some defenses that start dime packages all the time. You need four good corners. You start four good corners on defense. So I think bringing in guys early rounds like Asante Samuel Jr. that can play on the outside and on the inside. I think that's where there's a ton of value in the NFL right now. Well, thank you very much for all your tidbits. Uh, very excited to listen back to this after my uh, after my New York Jets make some selections and uh, very excited to continue to listen to everything you put out and read everything you put out. Um, before we end off here, a question I ask everybody who comes on this show is, when it's all said and done, Austin, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, from a high level, you know, high level, I just definitely want to you know, be one of the best, not the best content creator in, in sports media and football, man. I think that's a, it's a high bar and obviously still a long ways to go, but I think you do this for a reason. You know, it's still very competitive from the time I was playing football. I think you want to be the best and I think there's mm-hmm. opportunities to be the best and, you know, creating really good content and, and managing a team here at PFF where we create a ton of good content. I want PFF and 
whatever company I work for in the future, if I don't stay with PFF to be the best creating content. And I think we're in a good place to do that now. Well, that was a hell of an answer. Austin, where can the people find you? Yeah, follow me on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. Also check out the work I have at PFF.com or wherever you find your podcast, 2-4 Drafts, a Rookies and Draft Prospects podcast. Um, definitely check that out. Me and Mike Brenner do a ton of work there. Have a ton of fun on that podcast as well so you can get to know us a little bit more. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again, Austin. That was the incredible Austin Gale. My thanks once again to Austin for taking the time to come on. It was a lot of fun sitting down with him, and I wish him nothing but the best going forward. He's got a lot of good things cooking up there, pro football focus, and a lot of big things coming up in the lead up to the draft. A lot of great, great episodes of his podcast, so you should go and listen to that. And a reminder, if you want to listen to this podcast, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and then also on social media at Ambitious Podcast on Instagram and Ambitious with DP on Twitter. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, Ambitious listeners. We'll be back next week with a uh, little quarterback-centric episode.